the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. It could also be referred to as the Garbage Day edition because today, of course, is Garbage Day at the household of the Rices. So immediately after leaving uh, my place here at the studio at KPDQ, I'll begin the long and arduous process of gathering together our garbage. Well, Clark Hilton is engineering this afternoon. James Blend is producing, and we're glad to have you with us. We'll be talking with uh, Brandon Clements, who is the co-author of The Simplest Way to Change the World. I'll give you a little uh, insight. We're going to be talking about hospitality. Now, this book is written by a couple of guys, and I appreciate that they recognize the value of hospitality. Now, culturally, it tends to be the women who undertake making that happen. But these two recognize that this is not only uh, something that we do culturally, but it's something that Scripture says is a tremendous tool for us to make the gospel known to those around us. So we're going to talk with um, uh, Brandon Clements. Uh, about that. He's a pastor. He's the co-author, along with Dustin Willis, of uh, the book we'll be talking about. And later in the program, we'll uh, talk with Mike um, Sandella, who is a research analyst at the Media Research Center. Uh, We'll be talking about the uh, president's first 100 days. And the Media Research Center has, for the last 30 years, analyzed the media coverage of new administrations. And we'll uh, talk about this one as compared to others before it. So that's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, we talked yesterday about the fact that there was a a special election in Georgia and Democrats had sunk a lot of money, several millions of dollars from outside the state of Georgia, as well as the full press effort of Hollywood to get this guy over the top. The 50 percent threshold that uh, would mean would be no runoff. Well, two candidates, Republican Karen Handel and Democrat John Ossoff, will compete in a runoff in June after failing to garner 50 percent of vote in the special election in Georgia's 6th district. Well, the contenders in the jungle primary, as many have referred to it, include 11 Republicans, five Democrats and two independents. The only thing missing was a partridge in a pear tree. Voters will head back to the polls on the 20th of June to determine the winner between the two top vote getters. That means for the poor folks in the 6th congressional district of Georgia for the next two months, they're going to have to hear more of the campaign. Well, Ossoff, who Finished uh, with 48% of the vote, which was fairly impressive if you eliminate the fact that there were so many other contenders. He's a former uh, congressional aide, a filmmaker, while uh, Handel, the top Republican in the field, with 20% previously served as Georgia's Secretary of State. Now, most believe that if there was going to be a runoff, and most predicted there would be, uh, that the Republican would handily win it. Well, with 48% of the vote that Ossoff uh, uh, garnered, that may be a little tighter than was originally anticipated, but the outcome most are suggesting will be what's expected. In November, Donald Trump won Georgia's 6th Congressional District by fewer than two percentage points, so hmm, that may tell you something. The seat opened in February when Representative Tim, uh, rather Tom Price 
uh, was confirmed as Secretary of Health and Human Services, leaving that seat vacant. Price's seat has uh, been held by Republicans for nearly 40 years since former House Speaker Newt Gingrich won in 1978. In 2016, Price won re-election with almost uh, 60 percent of the vote. Ossoff, the Democrat, ran on a platform that included calls for health care reform, civil rights, provisions for environmental protection and support for Planned Parenthood. Washington right now, he said, is at its most divisive, most dangerous, most potentially destructive place in modern American history. In a classic piece of hyperbole, he said in the campaign ad, this is our first chance to make a statement about uh, who we are and what we stand for. Well, Ossoff, who grew up in Georgia's 6th District, doesn't currently reside in the area he's running to represent. The Washington Post reported he rather awkwardly responded to a question about it the day before the uh, the ballots were cast. But nonetheless, Georgia's uh, law does not require you to live in the district you are running to represent, which is a bit odd to me, but that's Georgia's uh, decision. Um, uh, he said that he has been living with his girlfriend, Alicia, for 12 years now down by Emory University, where she's a full-time medical student. As soon as she concludes her medical training, I'll be 10 minutes back up the street uh, in the district where I grew up. So apparently he grew up in the district, no longer lives there because he's living with his girlfriend. But as soon as she finishes, and we don't know when that will be, they're going to move back into the district he hopes to represent. Well, Handel, the Republican, ran on a platform that included calls uh, to repeal and replace Obama. Obamacare, support for pro-lifers issues, as well as backing a simpler, fairer tax code that promotes economic growth and securing our border. Trump did not endorse any of the 11 Republican candidates, but did ask voters to oppose Ossoff. Um, Trump also recorded a robocall that warned voters of the implications of his win. And a robocall simply means it's a pre-recorded call that uh, digitally chooses who and when is going to be called with that uh, content. Only you can stop the super liberal Democrats and Nancy Pelosi's group, and in particular John Ossoff, Trump said. If you don't vote, Ossoff will raise your taxes, destroy your health care, and flood our country with illegal immigrants. Trump does not see the Georgia race as a referendum on his presidency, White House spokesman Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, uh, speaking to the Washington Post. I won't use the word referendum. I think Trump hopes to have a Republican elected to that seat, and hopefully, it w- hopefully rather, it will be someone to follow in Tom Price's footsteps and be a leader from that district, end quote. Well, a Georgia political operative told the Daily Signal in an interview that Georgia is still a red state despite Democrats hoping it will turn blue and spending a significant amount of money and prestige in the area. Trying to say that this is going to be a bellwether for future House races is a stretch, the operative added. Democrats have tried uh, to use that narrative unsuccessfully before. But of course, of course, rather, only until um, ballots are cast and counted in June when we know who the actual winner is and what can and should be made of the outcome. So there you have it. Uh, by the way, the uh, Georgia GOP is now vowing to unite. You know, there were, what, 11 of them uh, running in this uh, uh, this special election. They say they're going to unite, beat Ossoff after forcing the runoff uh, with Trump's help. Democrats put their hope in the political uh, upstart. Um, he did well for the race, but given the uh, the numbers on both sides, it had to have been disappointing. I think there were, what, $8,000, uh, $8.3 million raised over the last uh, three months, 95% of which came from out of the state. Hollywood did a full court press to try to uh, uh, influence the outcome. So that's got to be a little bit debilitating, although they're pressing on suggesting that that 48% showing um, it says something about the outcome in June. We'll just wait and ultimately see. Meanwhile, um, Vice President Mike Pence is warning North Korea. I think all of us are on 
uh, pins and needles about what's going to happen there. Uh, He said the United States of America will always seek peace, but under President Trump, the shield stands guard and the sword stands ready, end quote. He told some 2,500 sailors dressed in blue fatigues and naval baseball caps on a sunny, windy morning aboard the carrier at the U.S. Uh, Yokosuka uh, Naval Base in Tokyo Bay, those who would challenge our resolve, our readiness should know we will defeat any attack and meet it uh, and uh, meet any use of conventional or nuclear weapons with an overwhelming and effective American response. Meanwhile, another story notes that two Russian Tu-95 Bear bombers were intercepted in international airspace off the coast of Alaska by two U.S. F-22 Raptor fighter aircraft again today off the coast of Alaska. Um, this is the second time that that has, uh, has taken place. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll let you know what uh, Mr. Tillerson had to say. He's the Secretary of State. We'll let you know what... Um, uh, um, the Attorney General Jeff Sessions had to say, and Secretary Kelly, who's the Secretary of uh, the Department of ha- uh, Homeland Security. All of that coming up in just a few moments when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Brandon Clements. He's the co-author of The Simplest Way to Change the World. It's really quite simple. We'll talk about it in our next segment. Well, today's Secretary of State Rex Tiller says the Iran nuclear deal fails to achieve its stated objective in preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear state. In a classic case of stating the obvious, which has been said over and over again since the thing was uh, first passed, or at least signed by the president, uh, then President Obama. But Tillerson is leaving open the possibility that the Trump administration will uphold it anyway. He says that will determine, or rather will be determined by an ongoing review. Tillerson is speaking to reporters after the State Department certified to Congress that Iran is currently in compliance with its obligations under the 2015 deal. He says the Trump administration has no intention of passing the buck on Iran to a future administration. Tillerson is also likening Iran's behavior to that of North Korea. He says an unchecked Iran could pressure the same paths as Pyongyang and take the world along with it. Also, Attorney General Jeff Sessions defended uh, the Trump administration's immigration policies today in response to criticism over the deportation of a 23-year-old dreamer who was uh, brought to the country illegally when he was nine. In an appearance uh, at Happening Now on Fox News, Sessions was asked about the case of Juan Manuel Montez, uh, who says he qualified for the Obama administration's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, but was deported to Mexico in February after being stopped by a police officer in California. Montez is suing the federal government. Everybody in the country illegally is subject to being deported. A Montez attorney says he qualified for DACA in 2014, was renewed in 2016, but the U.S. Customs and Border Protections officials says his permit expired in 2015 and was not renewed. They also note that Montez had been convicted of theft. Sessions said he doesn't know why Montez was deported and denied that DACA recipients are being targeted for deportation. But he warned against illegal immigrants thinking they are safe from deportation just because they've lived in the country for a long time. DACA enrollees are not being targeted. I don't know why this individual was picked up. He said everybody in the country illegally is subject for deportation. So people come 
uh, here and they stay here a few years and somehow they think that they're not subject to being deported. Well, they are, end quote. Well, President Trump has not been uh, clear about the intentions for DACA recipients. While he pledged during the campaign to end DACA, so far he's not done so, and has said in interviews that DACA recipients should not be worried. But Sessions warned that while the administration is focused on certain types of illegal immigrants, they weren't ruling out deporting anyone here illegally. Our priority is to end the lawlessness at the border, stop the additional flow of illegals into the country, then to prioritize those who have gotten in trouble with the law. Recent arrivals, people who have been deported previously, drug dealers and other criminal activists or uh, activity, and they need to be deported first, he said. But we can't promise people who are here unlawfully that they aren't going to be deported. In other words, it's not altogether clear um, whether or not uh, an individual who is somehow apprehended will not ultimately be deported if they're in the country illegally, even if they're not the subject of a specific target. Also bristling at the intense criticism his agents are getting over enforcing immigration laws, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, he told the gripers on Tuesday to shut up and demanded they stop questioning the patriotism and professionalism of his workforce. Mr. Kelly said he's fed up with calls from lawmakers complaining that his officers are unfairly targeting airline passengers because of their race or religion and with chiding for advocacy groups, rather from advocacy groups that are upset. He unleashed his agents to enforce the laws on the books on anything on everything from marijuana to immigration. If lawmakers do not like the laws they've passed and we are charged to enforce, then they should have the courage and skill to change the laws, he said. Otherwise, they should shut up and support the men and women on the front lines. He was speaking on Tuesday at George Washington University, where he laid out priorities for the sprawling department he took over three months ago. Homeland Security has ranked in recent years at the back of the pack in terms of federal employee morale and has struggled to find a unified mission among its various agencies, which handle everything from immigration to cybersecurity and disaster response from to attracting child pornographers. The department also oversees the Coast Guard and Secret Service. Wow. But it's the immigration and border missions that has uh, drawn the most focus in the early part of the Trump administration. Mr. Kelly said the Obama administration discouraged Homeland Security employees from doing their jobs, tying federal workers' hands with bureaucracy and politically uh, meddling. He said he and President Trump have made a decision to free up agents to enforce the law as written. He said he and his department won't apologize for that. Agents say their morale has already improved dramatically under Mr. Kelly and the number at borders uh, uh, at the border show illegal immigration is already way down. Activists, though, say that to, to achieve those results, Mr. Kelly and Mr. Trump have sent agents after rank-and-file illegal immigrants who don't have serious criminal records. Mr. Kelly challenged uh, uh, Tuesday uh, to shut up, also didn't sit well with the advocates. We get it. You're trying to improve morale and stand behind your agents, but those agents you're standing behind are nothing like the Marines you once commanded, said Frank Sherry, the executive director of America's Voice, who called immigration agents notorious for their lack of discipline, uh, roguish behavior, and desire to go after the easy prey in order to make their statistics look good. Mr. Sherry said that he still um, hopes... uh, Uh, or rather holds out hope that Mr. Kelly will see the light, reject the Trump immigration agenda, you know, the man he works for, and return to President Obama's priorities, a base system that left the vast majority of uh, illegal immigrants without reason to fear deportation. There seems to be little chance of that at this point, but we'll continue to follow what happens out of Washington. Representative Jason Chaffetz, uh, the outspoken Utah Republican and influential chairman of the House Oversight Committee, announced today that he will not seek re-election in 2018. 
The conservative lawmaker who's been in Congress since 2009 confirmed the decision on Facebook. After long consultation with my family and prayerful consideration, I have decided I will not be a candidate for any office in 2016, he wrote. Chaffetz is a longtime uh, fixture in Utah politics. He's hinted before at potentially running for governor in 2020, and his announcement could be the first step toward that goal. He also has uh, faced an early Democratic challenge for the House seat. In his statement Wednesday, he left open the door for another run, but said, for now, he's going into the private sector. After more than 1,500 nights away from my home, it's uh, it's time. I may run again for public office, but not in 2018, he said, adding, for those that, that would speculate otherwise, let me uh, clear uh, let me be clear that I have no ulterior motives. I am healthy. I am confident. I would continue to be reelected by large margins. I have the full support of the Speaker, Ryan, to continue as chairman of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. That said, I have made a personal decision to return to the private sector. And he reiterated that in interviews throughout the day. Well, a majority of the Supreme Court appeared to offer support today for a church Uh, excluded from a a publicly funded aid program during the hearing for what was considered Justice Neil Gorsuch's first high-profile case. At issue is a a double dose of contentious issues, religious freedom and taxpayer funding. It's one of the most closely watched cases of the term and could portend a series of upcoming church-state disputes facing the justices. Well, the justices are considering whether Trinity Lutheran Church in Columbia, Missouri, should be eligible for state funds. The church sued after being denied funding to improve the surface of a playground used by its preschool by replacing gravel uh, with softer recycled synthetic rubber. Uh, the state program gives grants to nonprofits seeking a safer recreational environment for children. But Missouri's law, similar to those of roughly three dozen other states, prohibits direct government aid to educational institutions that have a religious affiliation. Republican Governor Eric uh, Greitens' unexpected decision last week to change the policy and allow religious institutions to participate in the program raised questions about whether the uh, constitutional fight is now moot. But no one on the ninth uh, nine-member bench appeared ready to punt the case away. Instead, an intense hour of oral arguments focused on the merits. Uh, And the Supreme Court justices seemed to show support for the church in what was uh, Gorsuch's first high-profile case. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Brandon Clements. He's the co-author of The Simplest Way to Change the World. Now, who ever thought that there's a simple way to change the world? The subtitle, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life. It's not a special thing you do or you pull out all the best china. It's uh, biblical hospitality, as they point out, is a way of life. He co-authored the book with um, Dustin Willis, who planted and pastored for 10 years and now serves as the executive director of marketing at the North American Mission Board. Uh, Brandon Clements is a pastor at Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. He's uh, co-author of the book. We'll talk with uh, them or rather talk with him about hospitality and how it uh, is a mandate for believers. That's coming up next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest and his co-author remind us that God was welcomed, rather he has welcomed us home in Christ, and our response has to be to welcome others. Well, in their debut by Moody Publishers, Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements, they opened the reader's eyes to the power of hospitality as a God-ordained means 
to change the world. They describe hospitality as an active way to participate in gospel advancement and God's mission to reconcile all things to himself. In their own lives, the pair have uh, seen firsthand that no matter who it is, from college students to young families to empty nesters approaching retirement, joining God's mission can be as straightforward as opening your door and inviting others inside. Well, that can be daunting to some people, but we're going to find out how we can sometimes be mistaken as uh, as to what hospitality requires. Well, Brandon Clements joins us. He's a pastor of Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. He's been married to his college sweetheart, Christy, for nine years. They have three children. Uh, he currently blogs at DearBibleBelt.com and has previously published a novel, Every Bush is Burning. He joins us today to talk about the book he co-authored with Dustin Willis, simply called The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a way of life. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Now, it's interesting to me that there are two men writing on the subject of hospitality because many of our listeners assume that if hospitality is going to happen, this is something that a woman does and she has to pull out all the best of everything. The house has to be pristine and um, and the reason hospitality isn't practiced as often as one might like is because it just requires too much. Talk about that perception uh, that hospitality really is dropping everything, making everything perfect. And if it's not perfect, then you have to put it off until it is. Right, yeah. I think nothing could be further from the truth. And, uh, you know, we want to uh, look at the biblical commands for us as Christians to be hospitable, of which there, there are many. Uh, and you look primarily to Romans fifteen seven, it says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And so really a major effect of the gospel story in our lives is that we will be uh, aggressively welcome, welcoming of other people and we'll invite them into our lives, into our homes, so that they can actually see the gospel displayed. Uh, and so uh, we, we don't think it's a, um, a concept that, you know, is about having a mag- magazine cover home mm-hmm. or about putting out the best, but it's actually sharing our, our real, ordinary lives with others so that they can see the impact that, that the Lord has had on our lives. Well, I appreciate your uh, defining hospitality in such a way because it has nothing to do with home furnishings and whether or not the paint on the walls is right. It has something to do with the condition of one's heart and our desire to model what we've experienced as Christ has extended hospitality to us. Absolutely, yeah. It's all about the the spirit of welcoming other people into God's family. And so uh, I think actually it it actually is counterproductive uh, to try to entertain people, Mm -hmm. to try to impress them with our our homes and with our meals. And uh, I think if, uh, you know, if if I get invited into an environment like that, I'm kind of... My guard is up, and I don't mm-hmm. feel quite comfortable. But if someone is inviting me into their real life and their their ordinary day, and their house is a little messy, uh, that gives me a lot of hope because my my house is messy too. And so, yeah. uh, if someone is very as real with me, that that is a lot more relatable than someone trying to impress me. Now, I appreciate you're drawing a distinction between entertaining and extending hospitality. Anything else you'd like to add to the idea of defining hospitality as to what it is that that we are called to do? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, trying to take all that pressure off and, and to not uh, make it not about image management. It's not about uh, making people think a certain thing about you, uh, because the gospel frees us up to to not be focused on us at all, and that's to, to completely focus on the other people, to not worry about what they think of us or what they think of our home or what they think of the food that we cooked, but to uh, invite them over into our real life and 
cook some edible food. And if it tastes good, then that's great. But if it's edible, then that's great too. And uh, and focus on them and ask them good questions and uh, and just make the make the whole thing about them. And and that I think is um, makes us some some really attractive people because yeah. uh, people are, are interested in that. They're interested in the relationship, and that's a very countercultural and attractive thing. Yeah. Now, how did you and your family begin to practice hospitality in your home? Yeah, so my wife and I talked about this for years before we had kids, and we wanted to, you know, really make it a priority and make it a lifestyle change. And we always felt like we never had time because we were in grad school or we were traveling or whatever. But uh, eventually we just, um, we said, you know, we have Tuesday nights open, so what if we just kind of blocked off Tuesday nights for the purpose of, of having people over? And, um, you know, we kind of started with some people from our, our church, some people that we knew were struggling. We You know, we can invite them over and just kind of pray for them and just provide a, a safe space for them. And then we tried to start inviting neighbors who we met, you know, people that we didn't know. We were trying to build a relationship with, for, with uh, intentionality for the gospel. And so we just called it neighbor night. And we just cook a little bit of extra food on Tuesday night. So we try to be intentional about inviting people over on Tuesdays. And that just became a, a rhythm for us that actually became really life-giving. And we just kind of saw how the Lord was using it. So we just kind of kept, kept it going. Now, you made reference to the rhythms of hospitality. You described how you and your family practice that. But talk a little bit more about this idea of rhythm of hospitality, because it implies that it's not something we do occasionally, you know, when we can fit it in, but it's intentional, it's regular, with a view to minister to, to the people around you. Yeah, for sure. So I think it's it's much bigger than an event. It's about having an open life and, and an intentional posture. So when you're at work or when you're doing your hobbies or when you're out in the neighborhood and you, and you kind of come across people who you're, you know, talking to and you're getting to know them, but you have this idea of, I mean, I'm trying to invite them further into my life. And that might include my home. It might not include my home at first, but I, you know, maybe it's hanging out with them at lunch at, at first or whatever, but I'm always intentional about how do I, how do I invite them further into my life, and, uh, and so some of the things that we take advantage of are, you know, not just dinners at our house on a random night, but also things like, you know, our kids' birthday parties, you know, when, we, when we're trying to have a, a birthday party for one of our kids, we're not just, we don't want to just invite you know, all of our friends who we know are going to invite us to their kids with their parties, but we actually want to invite, you know, neighbors that we've met that, you know, maybe they're new to the area and they don't really um, seem to have a lot of relationships yet, or uh, we, we want to invite people that might actually benefit uh, and meet people and uh, we might actually get to kind of in, invite them into our lives and, and maybe be intentional about sharing our faith with them. Uh, and so any, anything like that that's any kind of a gathering or an event can actually be leveraged for the gospel and uh, instead of just being an event. Yeah, yeah. Now, for those who are a little bit nervous about the idea of practicing hospitality, let me ask you, <laughs> what's uh, one of the weirdest things that's happened uh, to you while hosting someone? Yeah, so we actually, uh, we uh, one of the first things that we did when we started kind of trying to leverage our home for this was we uh, actually met this lady who uh, was living in her car with her dog, and uh, she was, she told me the story, her car was broken down, we had to get towed, and uh, she told me the story about them eating frozen bacon that they found in a dumpster out in their car. And so uh, we actually invited that lady to come live with us, with her and her dog to come live with us for a while. Um, and we were really young, and we didn't really know what we were doing and didn't have a good, clear concept about uh, how to help someone in that situation. Mm-hmm. And so she ended up staying with us for a while and uh, found out that she was actually... Uh, 
she was a part-time life coach. So uh, she would actually kind of take phone calls over the internet, and people would pay her to give her to give them advice about how to live life. And it was just really funny and ironic because you know she was living in her car with her dog, <laughs> working as a <laughs> working as a part-time life coach, uh, and she would just retreat to her bedroom in her house, and she would take a phone call, and we'd hear her in there, you know, giving out all of this life advice, and uh, it was just really funny and ironic, <laughs> yeah, kind of knowing where she was, <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> And sure enough, that uh, she actually ended up uh, disappearing one day. We didn't know where she went. Left her dog at the house, and she actually uh, got arrested for a char- some kind of charge for fraud, and left left her dog at our house. And so uh, that was a, quite an interesting story. And we had to figure <laughs> out what to do with her dog. And uh, you know, she wrote us a letter from from prison, and uh, it was just a very interesting story. So that was one of the one of the first experiences we had with with all of this. So it's kind of a miracle that we're still doing it. Yeah, absolutely. But because you recognize it as something that we are called to do, it's a a response of gratitude. I suppose we just um, live through those kinds of situations and move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And and some of the times are, you know, we'll have a family over and we have three kids under three and, you know, if another family comes over with young kids, it's it's an absolute madhouse. It's just crazy. And Sometimes, you know, meltdowns happen and kids are, you know, wiping mashed potatoes all over the wall and, you know, just, just crazy things are happening. But uh, I think it's it's our tendency to think that those are failures, that those are like, you know, those are ruining the purpose of, of trying to have people over. But uh, what I found is that those are actually really solid memories that we make with people where uh, people actually feel like we're sharing a real moment there where... They feel like they're seeing our family at our craziest moments, and uh, and they actually benefit from that, and they they feel closer to us because of that, you know. And so, yeah. I think it's a uh, you know we have to kind of be careful about the you know the what we perceive as losses or, or failures because a lot of times I think they're actually really meaningful moments that we share with other people that, and uh, help build further relationship with them. Sharing life together. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Brandon Clements. He's a pastor at Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. His co-author, Dustin Willis, has been a pastor and now serves as a, uh, uh, in South Carolina. Uh, I, I I guess that's right, at Midtown Fellowship in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 48 minutes after... Make, make that 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Brandon Clements. He's the co-author, along with Dustin Willis, of The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life. What were your models in life for practicing hospi- hospitality as a Christian? Yeah, so I think the first one was my grandmother. Uh, so she you know, was my next-door neighbor all of my life and uh, became a Christian when I was a young child. And uh, she just always modeled having people in her home. And so there were, there were always kids in her home. There were always people in the home. She was always preparing food for everyone and welcoming everyone who needed a place to, to, to stay and everyone who needed uh, just a, a hot meal and uh, an ear to listen to them. Uh, she was just the perfect model of a of a welcoming per- person who uh, loved Jesus and just loved other people really well. So I think I learned a, a lot from her and, and then just kind of, you know, other people uh, in the state who were a little bit older than me that, you know, invited us, myself and my wife, into their home and 
uh, shared, you know, what they learned about marriage and about life and about parenting with us and just kind of, uh, you know, took an interest in us and, and invited us into their, their real ordinary lives. And so I think those are, you know, the biggest models of, of hospitality for me. Mm. Now, as a follower of Christ, what's the theological ground for Christians practicing hospitality? And how does our faith motivate us to live a life that extends hospitality on a regular basis? It's an intentional part of our um, of our way of extending the gospel and changing the world. Sure. So there, you know, there are several biblical commands for us to to show hospitality uh, to believers and and in general. And it's actually uh, one of the qualifications for uh, being an elder, which I think catches a lot of people by surprise. Um, and so. Uh, there are certainly commands all over the New Testament about being hospitable. We actually try to make a bigger argument in the book that uh, the, the entire story of creation is actually a story about God's hospitality to us. And so if you read the story of creation in Genesis, you know, it, it reads like God is just this gracious, welcoming host. And he's like, all of this, I made it for you. All, everything is your is yours, and this is your home, this is where you're going to live, and then, of course, Adam and Eve rebelled against uh, God, and so the whole rest of the story is then how is God going to be hospitable to us and continue to be hospitable to sinners uh, if you can't be uh, tolerant of sin, and so uh, that culminates in in Jews, of course, and then uh, Jews instituting the Church, and so really we we want to see the whole story of creation as a story of God's hospitality to us, and so uh, if that is true, then that makes it a just a no-brainer for us as Christians to practice this as a way of life and to uh, basically to be missionaries through leveraging our lives and our homes. And so we try to make sure that people understand that if we if we don't see our homes as a part of our, our mission as Christians, then we're knocking out about a third of our life uh, from any potential for being a missionary. And the other third is you're asleep, and the other third you're at work. So if you mm. knock out the portion where you're at home, then you're really, really handicapping yourself to where, um, you know, it leaves the drive to work and home and your hobbies, and that's pretty much it, you know. And so uh, your your home life is actually extremely important to, to how you can actually show that also to the people around you. Yeah, absolutely. What's the hardest thing uh, for you when it comes to opening your home for, for mission? And do you ever find or does your family find that it, it can be overwhelming? Sure, yeah. Um, so my wife and I are both very, very high introverts. We both get energy from being alone and kind of having, um, you know, downtime. And, and so we do want our home to be a refuge for us as well uh, as a refuge for other people. I think the hardest thing that we've encountered actually is just having young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just it's just crazy. We, I mean, we have a three-year-old, a uh, one-year-old, and then we just adopted an almost two-year-old. And so um, it, it does make it more difficult, more challenging. I think that's been the hardest thing. We've, we've tried to continue making it a, a rhythm of our family because we want our kids to to grow up thinking this is normal, that we, we do life with other people, that we share a home with others, that our home is for connecting with others, not for disconnecting from others. And so well, we're absolutely committed to making it a rhythm. Um, it certainly does get more challenging whenever you kind of add, you know, young kids and babies into the mix. Um, but, but it's been really rewarding, and even our three-year-old, just kind of seeing her, uh, you know, frequently asking, like, you know, our friends coming over tonight, you know, who's coming over for dinner tonight, and just kind of seeing her start to understand that this is what we do as believers, is that we share life with other people. One of the um, practical ideas mentioned in the book is called the always rule. What does that mean? And what problem does that specifically address? Yeah, so, you know, when, when Jesus says for us to love uh, our neighbor as ourselves, you know, we, we try to see that as, 
maybe he was talking about anyone, you know, anyone around us, but maybe he was also talking about the people who actually live right beside us, as in our actual neighbors. And so uh, we want to really prioritize that. And what I found in my life is that when I'm out and about in my neighborhood, and there are many other houses in, in the neighborhood where we live, and uh, usually whenever I see a neighbor that I don't know yet, it always feels like it's an inconvenient moment. You know, I'm, I'm getting groceries out of the car, or I'm getting one of our children out of the car, or I'm, you know, getting the mail or something, and, and I see them. And I quickly wave, but it, it feels like it feels like an inconvenient time to kind of meet them and talk to them. And so the always rule basically is I've just decided that anytime I see a neighbor that I don't know, I'm just going to stop whatever I'm doing and meet them and talk to them. Uh, just just to go ahead and decide beforehand that I'm always going to do that. Uh, and I've actually seen a lot of fruit from that. I've seen a lot of relationships built um, through just being like, hey, I'm just going to stop, and this is not convenient, but I want to stop and meet this person and talk to them. And uh, one of the guys that I shared about in the book was um, named Stuart, and and he's actually he's still not a believer, but he's coming to our church regularly, and uh, he, he, I think he's on the path, uh, you know, the uh, path toward Jesus, uh, because one day I stopped you know, at my mailbox, and I, you know, it was inconvenient, but I stopped and had a conversation with him, and now we have a great relationship because of that. So uh, it's just a thing that I've done to, to basically help me um, take advantage of those moments to actually meet my neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the book is divided into two sections. The first section is on the potential, uh, and the second section is on the plan, in which you provide real practical um, insight into how to practice hospitality in a way that's uh, that's meaningful. Um, your the subtitle of your book or the title of your book is the simplest way to change the world. How does extending hospitality to our friends and neighbors and family members, people we barely know, people we know well, how does that uh, ultimately change the world? Yeah, because we do it with gospel intentionality, and so and so it's all part of us being missionaries and us um, basically uh, leveraging our lives and our homes to share the gospel with people. And so the you know the point is not just to you know to build a relationship just for the sake of you know hanging out, but the point is that uh, ultimately we would uh, share you know learn what's most important about their lives, and you know in the appropriate times we would share with them what's most important about our lives, which is which is Jesus. And so. Um, you know, I don't I've talked with many people about this, and I don't I don't think that it's supposed to feel like a timeshare thing where you know you invite someone over for the first time and and you know you cook them dinner and you're like all right now that I've cooked you dinner you have to listen to my 15 minute mm-hmm. you know, gospel presentation. I think you know it probably works best more natural than that and kind of in the flow of building a relationship with them. But but we do have a you know a purpose of uh, sharing the hope that we have in Christ with them as a part of building this relationship in this friendship with them. And so uh, I think as long as we actually are communicating that we care about these people, that, they're, uh, that they matter to us, uh, that we are not just viewing them as an evangelism project, but that we are genuinely trying to share life with them and trying to know them as people and trying to share some incredible good news with them that we found about Jesus. And it's, and it's a, I think, the most effective way to actually evangelize. You also make the point that biblical hospitality will change the church's reputation in our culture. People have an impression that may be uh, legitimate or not, uh, but nonetheless, uh, it does provide an opportunity uh, to redeem a reputation that may have been sullied in the culture. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, there have been several research studies published that you know, non-Christians view view Christians as hypocritical and judgmental and, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of words like that. And so I think that a lot of those people have probably never had 
a very welcoming and warm and genuine Christian and invite them into their home and, and share a meal with them and, uh, and, and just kind of share their ordinary life with them. And so I do think it's just a fantastic opportunity in, in a culture that's growing more and more hostile to the Christian faith. I think it's an incredible opportunity for us to, um, you know, for when people to, when people form their opinions about Christians, they're not just thinking about these disconnected, weird people they read about on the news, but they're thinking about their neighbor who had them over for dinner on Tuesday, who was actually really nice, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's a really, really powerful opportunity for us. Well, the book is a, a wonderful call to biblical hospitality as a way to change um, our perception of the world, the world's perception of us, and our ability to uh, extend the gospel as uh, the gospel was extended to us. The title is The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life. Brandon, thank you so much for uh, the book and for talking with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Georgine. Really appreciate it. I should mention, too, the book comes with a six-week group study uh, that can help you as a, a Bible study group, as a congregation, to go through uh, these principles as well. So that's a great resource uh, that you might consider. Again, the simplest way to change the world, biblical hospitality as a way of life. We're going to take a few moments for news and traffic here in just a few moments. But when we return, we'll talk a bit about uh, uh, some additional news stories, but also we'll talk with Mike um, Sandella, who is a research analyst at the Media Research Center. Uh, we're approaching uh, the first 100 days of the Trump administration, and the Media Research Center monitors how media covers certain things. They've done this uh, for the last 30 years, and that includes the last several presidents. And so we're going to talk about how um, on, in this very contentious season, uh, the media has covered this administration and what we might anticipate moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Mike Sandella. He's the uh, research analyst for the Media Research Center. We're going to talk about the first 100 days of the Trump administration as it has been covered by the media. As you know, there's been a rather contentious relationship from the very beginning with candidates Trump and then um, the president-elect and now President Trump will uh, analyze how he's been covered and what we might anticipate moving forward. Well, for the second consecutive night, Russia flew um, two low-range bombers off the coast of Alaska today or on Tuesday, this time coming within 36 miles of the mainland while flying north to the Aleutian Islands, two U.S. officials are saying. The two nuclear-capable 295H bombers were spotted by U.S. military radar at about 5 p.m. local time. And unlike a similar incident on Monday night, this time the U.S. Air Force didn't scramble any fighter jets. Instead, it launched a single E-3 Sentry early early warning aircraft uh, known as, uh, as AWACS uh, to make sure there were only the two Russian bombers flying near Alaska and not other aircraft flying underneath the larger bomber. Well, U.S. Uh, territorial waters extend 12 nautical miles from shore. Two Russian bombers flew within 100 miles of Alaska on Monday night. Well, the Russian bombers took off from an air base um, in Russia and returned five hours later to an air base in uh, uh, Anadir, I believe is the pronunciation. Both locations are in eastern Russia, some 1,000 miles away. Last week in Moscow, the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said U.S.-Russian relations were at a low point during a news conference with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. 
Uh, While Tillerson was in Moscow, a trio of Russian bombers flew near the east coast of Japan, forcing the Japanese military to scramble 14 fighter jets at various times to intercept the bombers. A Russian spy plane traversed Japan's west coast as well. Well, before Monday's flight near Alaska, the last last time Russian bombers flew near the U.S. was the 4th of July, 2015, when a pair of Russian bombers flew off the coast of Alaska and California, coming as close as 40 miles uh, to Mendocino, California. Russian President Vladimir Putin called then-President Barack Obama to wish him a happy Independence Day while the bombers cruised the California coastline. In February, a Russian spy ship sailed up and down the east coast of the United States while remaining in international waters. What all of this means isn't altogether clear if it's a form of innocent saber-rattling or if it's intended to communicate some other sort of message is not clear. But this is the second occasion in as many days. Well, a list of uh, possible cuts to state agencies that uh, paints a pretty dark future for Oregonians was the talk in uh, in the Capitol today in Salem. To fill the looming budget gap, Democrats proposed throwing 350,000 low-income Oregonians off Medicaid, cutting services to foster children and the families that care for them, taking away $30 million for highway repairs, delaying expansion of Oregon's overcrowded women's prison, and much, much more. Top Democrats say these gut-wrenching cuts won't all be necessary if their colleagues at the state capitol can agree to raise new revenue in the form of a new tax on hospital services and businesses which, of course, taxpayers and consumers in Oregon will ultimately pay. Legislative work groups are crafting plans in private to slow the growth of the state's uh, costs long-term through reforms to public pension programs and budgeting practices that cause spending to balloon, among other things. Of course, uh, uh, the pension program is not in this uh, discussion, it would appear. Lawmakers are expected to reveal their plans soon and eventually hold public hearings on the proposal. But before doing so, have to paint the bleakest possible a portrait of uh, the state without higher taxes. The list of proposed spending cuts comes three months after the state's top budget writers released a rough plan to balance the budget in the absence of new revenue. Monday's list fills in uh, details providing the amount to be cut from each program area line by line. Republicans, on the other hand, they say the proposed cuts are just scare tactics. It's really just appalling, says Senator uh, Uh, Tim Knope of Bend, there's no need to pitch these, he says. As vice chair of the state, uh, rather the Senate Workforce Committee, Knope is involved in discussions to reform the state's public pension system and has introduced a couple of his own proposals. He said he doesn't understand why Democrats would release a list of cuts that don't take into account savings from the various cost-saving measures that his committee and other groups are considering. Senator Richard Devlin of uh, Tualatin, who's a Democrat, is one of the legislator's top two budget writers. He said any long term spending reforms wouldn't do much to offset the budget gap in the coming two years. The bulk of the savings would come in later budget cycles, he explained. The cuts, well, you'll have to wait or or they'd have to come first. Well, Canope, however, ticked off several proposals to lower state spending on public employees, changing who provides state employee health insurance, making changes to automatic wage increases, reclassifying employees and uh, instituting a target hiring freeze. These changes could all save money in the short term, he says. There are dozens of things that could be done that don't affect programs that Oregonians care about. 
by releasing this heinous list of cuts, as he put it. Knope said the Democrats are undermining the legislature's ability to work together and reach a compromise, one he sees as including both spending reforms to PERS and other programs, as well as new taxes on business. Well, Devlin says he and his fellow budget co-chair, Representative Nancy Nathanson, presented the list of cuts to Republicans and Democrats in both chambers before releasing it Monday afternoon. The co-chairs asked their committees, 12 subcommittee co-chairs, nine of whom are Democrats, to help them decide exactly where the broad cuts uh, they laid out uh, should fall. Three Republicans also are subcommittee co-chairs. We're trying to give a very, very clear, very transparent picture of where we are in budget, Devlin said of the list. Currently, this picture doesn't include a penny of new revenue. Well, Senate President Peter Courtney said that he and his fellow lawmakers are working on it, but they didn't uh, want to get ahead of themselves. The proposed cuts also don't take into account additional revenue projected in March in the state revenue forecast. Instead of factoring in that money, the budget co-chairs say that they're waiting for the May forecast, which is traditionally used as a basis for building the budget for the next two years. We're not getting out of here without some cuts, Courtney says. We've got to uh, get some new revenue. We don't uh, know how much, and that's going to vary. We just can't uh, tell on this day, the 18th of April, but we're going to have to make some cuts regardless. Well, unions blasted the proposed cuts as devastating and called on large corporations to pay their, in quotes, fair share of the uh, form of higher taxes. Governor Kate Brown praised the work that uh, went into drafting the list, but called the cuts unacceptable. I'm working with my agency directors to contain costs and create savings across the state enterprise, she said in a statement. But it will not be enough just to tighten our belts. We must restore fairness, fairness again in quotes, to our tax system to be able to protect our children, families, jobs, and not unduly burden them. So the, the portrait has been painted. It's rather ugly. And the solution, as is always the case, more taxes here or there, but somewhere. Meanwhile, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler declared the city open for business to companies developing autonomous vehicles. Yes, autonomous vehicles. Now, Wheeler and Transportation Commissioner Dan Saltzman directed the Transportation Bureau to draft policies for autonomous vehicles uh, that would give developers a path to apply for permits to test them within the city, including on open public roads. And my concern is, are these things going to be equipped to dodge the many potholes uh, that still uh, mark the streets of the Portland metro area yet unfilled? Uh, Wheeler, speaking before the Portland Business Alliance, said the framework would create a fair and level playing field. I'd like to think there would be a level playing field with fewer potholes in them for these autonomous um, vehicle companies, as well as those of us who are driving our vehicles today. Well, uh, he says we can't simply uh, dismiss the idea that autonomous vehicles are going to be a big part of our transportation system instead of waiting for this new technology to come here and have us uh, confront it. <coughs> Excuse me. The responsible thing is to prepare for the future. I agree wholeheartedly with the mayor of the city of Portland. We need to prepare for the future by filling in the potholes that already exist. Chances of that, very, very slim. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 18 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, on our next segment, we're going to talk with Mike Sandella. He is a research analyst at the Media Research Center. We're going to look at media coverage of the administration as compared to previous administrations. It's difficult to compare this one to previous in a lot of ways, but we're going to look at the media coverage and what that might mean uh, now and moving forward. I think we're somewhere approaching the 100th day. I think we might still be in the 80s, but nonetheless, we'll take a look at that. 
We were talking about Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who has declared the city is open for business to uh, companies developing autonomous vehicles. I'm not really sure I'm ready for that. Um, but he says the responsible thing to do is to prepare for the future. I would be happy if we would prepare for, you know, my drive into work tomorrow. I literally, um, I'm sure people behind me think I must be drinking because I'm weaving all over the road trying to avoid uh, potholes that just, you know, uh, pockmark all of the streets that, that I get to uh, here and elsewhere. Uh, I drive on getting here and elsewhere. Uh, I've already popped three tires in potholes in the Portland area, and I'm still dodging the same holes that... Uh, uh, disabled my tires in the first place. But he says the responsible thing to do is to prepare for the future of the autonomous vehicle. So I'm wondering if they have better tires than I do. And by the way, they're all brand new right now. He said getting ahead of the uh, issue would help Portland shape the technology to suit the needs of the city and its residents. Wheeler said companies wishing to test their vehicles in Portland, whether on closed uh, courses or public roads, really on public roads, I would have to determine that the vehicles are safe. Well, we're still not quite there yet. Transportation Bureau staff said they'll likely um, would uh, hew closely to guidelines released last year by the Federal National Highway Safety, a Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, they're going to craft policies that would reduce congestion, vehicle miles, traveled and uh, uh, pollution, largely by prioritizing shared fleets over privately owned vehicles. So we've already got the um, mass transit. We've got the trolleys that are uh, back in town. And the idea now is to have vehicles that are not driven by anyone in particular. They're autonomous. And uh, the idea is to get as many people in them as possible, which hasn't been as popular an idea as I think Portland had hoped with some of these transportation options that are already available. Anyway, the uh, mayor had previously expressed enthusiasm for embracing self-driving vehicles. He said in a March city council meeting that he would like to see the city conduct a pilot focused on autonomous vehicles. We'll, uh, uh, we're all warming up for the race, but we don't know what the race is yet. Uh, we don't know what the trajectory of autonomous or linked vehicles will be, and we don't have a clear understanding of what that means in terms of infrastructure and policy, but we know it's coming. Well, I'd like to see it come elsewhere, and let's just deal with some of the practical issues that autonomous vehicles might find useful at some point in the future, that future that we are told is coming Maybe starting by just filling in potholes. I'd be happy with that. Well, CBS News is reporting that uh, journalists Jonathan Allen and uh, Amy Parnes have provided the latest autopsy of the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign for the presidency in her book titled Shattered, or rather their book, Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign, which was published on Tuesday. The book explains in detail what Allen and Parnes, the two authors, say were the follies made along um, uh, Clinton's path to the White House, and they dissect what happened within the Clinton campaign while Hillary was uh, measuring the drapes in the Oval Office. And that's a quote, by the way. Um, the agony of the algorithm is one of the things they emphasize in the book. And by the way, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Campaign manager Robbie Mook put a lot of faith in the campaign's computer algorithm, ADA, as they called it, which was uh, supposed to give them a leg up in turning out likely voters. But the Clinton's campaign use of the highly complex algorithm focused on ensuring voter turnout rather than attracting votes from across party lines. And according to the book, Mook was interested or incessant that uh, that the software would be uh, reversed as the campaign's secret weapon um, once Clinton won the White House. So it would be uh, used in a different way, but still used uh, to um, assure that she would have a second term. With his commitment to ADA, this, um, this program, uh, with their commitment to the, the program, 
uh, and pro- the data that it would provide, the analytics, MOOC often butted heads with Democratic Party officials who were concerned about the lack of attention in persuading undecided voters in Clinton's favor. Those Democratic officials, as it turned out, had a point. Then there's Brianna Biana, as the chapter title puts it. Shattered also reveals that Clinton gave the first national television interview of her campaign to the wrong journalist, um, which did not serve her well. Communications director Jennifer Palmiari, she reportedly asked top aide Huma Abedin who Clinton wanted to do uh, the interview. When Clinton replied, Brianna Palmiari uh, booked her on CNN with Brianna Kreiler. Uh, it turned out that Clinton had actually meant Biana with no R, as in Yahoo News, Biana Galadaria or, or something, the wife of uh, the Obama budget director, Peter Orzat. Um, he had also served in the Clinton administration as an economist. By the time the mistake was realized, it was too late to pull back, Allen and Parnes wrote. The interview, the two wrote, was a disaster. An aide described Clinton as uh, staring daggers at Kyler during the interview, which didn't serve her uh, press team hopes of revealing a Hillary Clinton at ease with the press and confident her email troubles were nothing to be concerned about. And the book uh, chronicles a series of missteps uh, similar to this. And then there's uh, Bill in the shadows. Out of fear that Bill Clinton might steal the spotlight from his wife, the Clinton campaign did their best to limit his face time with voters and the media until later in the campaign. This face is between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, uh, they said, not Donald Trump and Bill Clinton, uh, Mook said, uh, speaking on Face the Nation on CBS. Mr. Trump attempted to drag Bill Clinton's legacy into the news cycle by reintroducing the topic of his infidelity and casting him as a someone who actually abused women rather than uh, was being accused of it or at least spoke about it as his um, expose revealed. This was obviously inconsistent with Mrs. Clinton's narrative, someone who would uh, actually stand up for women. And while Bill Clinton had an obvious personal investment in his wife's success, the campaign saw his image as a potential liability despite his past success in wooing working class white voters who would um, who wound up voting in mass for Donald Trump. So that is uh, a miscalculation, according to the authors. And then in the aftermath of her Democratic primary defeat in 2008, Clinton had an aide uh, download the emails of all her staffers, according to the book. A staffer told the authors that Clinton wanted to know who was talking to whom, who was leaking to whom as well. She believed her campaign had failed her, not the other way around, the staffer said. Clinton then used the information in post-election meetings with aides during an autopsy to figure out what went wrong. Well, the men and women she met with, apparently unaware that she uh, had had access to their emails, uh, were amazed that a woman who had been traveling the country in pursuit of the presidency had such a detailed grasp of the uh, machinations of the, of the campaign's command center in the Washington suburbs, according to the, uh, the author, uh, authors, rather, plural, of the book. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's what Obama told Clinton by phone in the wee hours of the morning on November 9th, around the time her campaign chairman, John Podesta, was telling supporters they wouldn't hear from, uh, from Clinton just yet around 2 a.m., in a conversation with Mook, her campaign director, just before she spoke to the president, Clinton had uh, indicated she wasn't prepared to concede. I'm not ready to give this speech, she told Mook. She wondered what she would uh, say uh, to the women, young and old, who had championed her candidacy. Uh, the, the pair 
uh, wrote in the book. Uh, Obama, uh, Obama rather called Podesta and reiterated what he had already conveyed to Clinton, that it was pointless to prolong the process. He didn't want to see her question the integrity of the election as her opponent had soon after she spoke with the uh, president and after the AP had called the election for Mr. Trump. She made the call to her opponent, but very reluctantly, but at the uh, under the advice of the president. Congratulations, Donald, she told him in a call that lasted under a minute. One could only imagine uh, the ice on the phone line during that exchange. Then there was another call from Obama, whom Abedin handed her the phone. Mr. President Clinton reportedly said, I'm sorry. Well, the book was out on Tuesday, and um, I have no doubt it's uh, very interesting to see uh, what they suggest is the reason for the, the lack of success um, that really was the, the campaign and not some of the exterior issues that have uh, since been raised. The book is titled Shattered and looking forward to um, to seeing that. Uh, John Potterts, by the way, is written on the subject as well. Um, and he points out that in the last week before the election, the Hillary campaign did no polling, no polling whatsoever. Um, they had lots of data analytics, but no polling. So when the election began to turn Donald Trump's way, the Clinton campaign had no idea. This is one of a thousand revelations in the book shattered inside Hillary Clinton's doomed campaign. The new book by Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes that for political junkies redefines the word juicy for our time. So anyway, that book is uh, currently out. I'm looking forward to trying to get my hands on a copy of it to see what, um, what revelations are there? I'm certain there will be a postmortem and has been for uh, these last several months uh, among the Democrats who are desperate for a victory moving forward. And by the way, I mentioned that uh, Georgia defeat, well, first round defeat uh, that will result in a June 20th election for the 6th district in uh, in Georgia. The focus will shift then to Montana, where they're, it's a reliably Republican state as well, but Democrats believe they may have a foothold in there as well. Looking at some of the reliably Republican districts, hoping for a win and to uh, label that as a referendum uh, or a signal to um, the president that midterm elections will go their way. And there's a desperate need for, uh, for some success among the Democrats. Anyway, we'll follow that um, race as well. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Mike Sandella. He's a research analyst at the Media Research Center. The first 100 days of a presidency is uh, important in that it sort of sets the tone. It gives uh, politicians in Washington, lobbyists in Washington, and the rest of us an opportunity to look in for a, a period of time to determine the nature of the character of the new administration. And that's uh, what's being witnessed today, how that's covered, however, has differed this time around from previous administrations for reasons I think we could all probably uh, speculate about. But Mike um, uh, Sandella will uh, talk a bit about uh, what the Media Research Center has determined has been the kind of coverage that's been received. So that's coming up in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as President Trump approaches the end of his first 100 days in office, that's that tends to be very significant. He's received far more hostile press treatment than any incoming president in American history. Well, here to tell us more about that is Mike Sandella. He's a research analyst at the Media Research Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, first of all, let's talk about a president's first 100 days. That is a significant period of time, and it's always analyzed as being some kind of an indicator of the kind of administration we might expect. Why is this 100 days significant? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the president's first 100 days, you see 
like the, what he says on the campaign trail is one thing. When it's actually put into practice, that's when you see whether or not the candidate you voted for is actually going to do what he did. Uh, he said he set out to do. Um, it's when you get to see how well he works with Congress. And in the case of a president, it's very significant. Um, and, and all presidents have it have the first hundred days. All presidents get coverage for the first hundred days, and this is just so overwhelmingly bad. Um, the Media Research Center now, this is our 30th year being around. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all our time, we've never seen coverage this skewed. Um, and like, like I, we said in the study, and you mentioned earlier, it's the worst that uh, in American history for any president, incoming president's first 100 days. Now, isn't that typically sort of a honeymoon period in which they back off just a little bit while everyone is trying to determine whether or not the new president and administration is credible, what their style will be, their relationship with Congress, and then things tend to heat up after that first 100 days? Oh, absolutely. I remember um, she's not necessarily a media type, but Oprah back during Obama's first 100 days saying that there's a learning curve. And for Obama, the, the press certainly seemed to give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. Uh, and, and, and say if there's a learning curve, he's still learning the ropes, here he is trying to figure stuff out, here's him doing this for the first time. Um, but with Trump, right off the bat, they jumped right on the negative coverage. Now, of course, that began in the, on the campaign trail. Donald Trump wasn't particularly favorable with the media. One would assume that they would be above it all, and as journalists would uh, would cover uh, a candidate and then president in a way that um, uh, that takes the high road. But that has not been the case here. There's been... Um, uh, contention between the two from the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about the kind of coverage over these first nearly 100 days President Donald Trump has received. Uh, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it's gone pretty much straight from the campaign trail. Uh, we did a study on that. It was about 87% negative on the campaign trail. And it just segued right into the first 100 days being uh, being the 89% that it is. Um, they, they focus, uh, another thing they've done, besides just being overwhelmingly negative, they focus on topics they think will make him look bad. Um, like during the, the Obama presidency, they focused on a lot of his policy initiatives. They focused on things that, that they thought were positive, his health care, his, uh, his trip to Europe. They hyped up a lot during his first hundred days. Um, but for President Obama, it's things like uh, accusations that he might have, that members of his team might have connections with the Russians, took up an incredible amount of the coverage. Um, the travel ban, the rollout of the travel, the the, the ban uh, on um, the temporary travel ban from certain uh, countries that harbor terrorists got an incredible amount of negative coverage. Anything that they think will portray him poorly, uh, they seem to focus on. The actual policy things, they've covered less than 1% of the time. So I think it's important that you emphasize not only is there a lot of negative coverage, but there was the absence of any uh, or very little positive coverage on initiatives that were taken by the administration in these first nearly 100 days. Absolutely. And one thing to keep in mind, too, is this is 89 percent. This isn't including people like if Nancy Pelosi has an interview. We're not counting that. We're only counting journalists and specific experts that the journalists bring on to ask questions that, that are, are slanted in the way that the, uh, uh, the, the news organization wants them to go. Now, so we're only looking at those, not, not congressmen, not senators, not, not known partisans. These are only journalists and journalistic experts. Yeah, n- news stories that they themselves generated. Now, Trump critics would suggest that there, because there was such contention between the, uh, the candidate, then president, then administration and the media, because he was so critical of them, uh, and because there was such a, a hue and cry from his political opponents on the other side of the political ledger, uh, that that was the story, and so that's what they covered. What should the role of uh, journalists be in a contentious first 100 days of a of a president 
Um, and is it their um, is it their job to report the story and then allow the public to determine whether or not they perceive it as negative or positive? How would you analyze what they should have done uh, and what the critics say about what they have done? You know, I think the fact that he's been at such odds with the, the media and criticizing so much is a perfect example of them doing it wrong. And you're right, the, the media should be above the fray. They should be stating these things, presenting the facts that people, the people are smart enough to decide on their own what, what to think about these different issues. Um, but they've taken it personally. He's insulted them personally. Um, they've all got egos, and they're, they're going to act in it. They're going to fight him because now the fight is, I mean, they see it as an attack on their family. Um, and they shouldn't because that's not their job. Their job is not to defend themselves uh, to the American people. Their job is if they do their work well, their work will defend them before the American people. Um, but they've been so overwhelmed. And if you look at the uh, another thing we looked at uh, when putting together the study of Trump's first, uh, well, 80 days, because we're coming up 100 days now, mm-hmm. is we looked back at Obama's coverage, and it was so embarrassingly gushing. We had people like ABC's Bill Weir saying that even the seagulls looking down at the inauguration crowd um, must have been amazed. Just think, <laughs> and Chris Matthews saying he got a thrill of his life hearing Obama speak. Things that it sounds like a parody account, like something yeah. the Onion or, or someone like that would put out. But these are actual journalists who are just so gushing over uh, Obama, and it's these exact same journalists eight years later are just eighty-nine percent critical of everything Trump does. Yeah, and both examples are, are incorrect. I mean, they shouldn't be gushing over uh, a president. They shouldn't be uh, overly critical. They should be reporting on events rather than editorializing, I suppose. Uh, on those events. Well, as you pointed out, we're approaching the first 100 days. That's a significant uh, marker in a in an administration. Um, ha- do you anticipate things will will soften at all moving forward? Is there any indication that we're going to see journalism as at, at one point was expected to come from these media outlets? Or are we going to see more of the same over the next uh, uh, three years and 200 days? I think if if the, the past year or so, or I guess a year and almost two years now, since, since Trump declared his candidacy, it's us anything, that it's going to be consistently negative for as long as they still have viewers. Um, they, they've made their decision, they're, they're uh, uh, set in their ways, and I think they're just going to keep going. Well, you made the point as long as they have viewers, and we know that they are uh, disliked nearly as much as politicians themselves. So the media has suffered a significant blow uh, during the the campaign and certainly during these first 100 days, um, that has had a real impact as well uh, on the the fact that people look less to them as resi- a reliable source of information. Oh, it definitely has. Um, we we track the how the media are liked over the course of like back in the, the 1980s when the media research center started. The media were very well trusted. You had people. Uh, I mean, it was almost uh, 90 percent. Uh, of people who watched the news believed everything they heard. That number has dropped off dramatically. And just since uh, Trump has popped on the scene, it's dropped off even more dramatically still. If you made a, uh, a bar trade, it would just drop off in the past two years because um, the media are just being very uh, more outspoken about these things than they ever have been. I mean, they were bad with the coverage of George W. Bush. They were bad with the coverage of Obama. Um, but they're so almost enraged right now. It's just uh, such an obvious bias. And I think people are really starting to catch on to that. Well, I, one would hope that over time that this would result in a, a, a better uh, media that would restrain itself from engaging in um, in what we're seeing now as essentially fake news in, in a lot of cases. And that uh, we'd see a more disciplined media that would um, uh, report on the facts and allow people to to 
evaluate their response to uh, what a president, a candidate, an administration is doing rather than what we're seeing today. So, you know, hope springs eternal, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not overly yes, optimistic. Yes, I definitely hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Again, uh, Mike Sandella is a research analyst at the Media Research uh, Center. Uh, they, over the last 30 years, have analyzed how the media has uh, covered uh, presidents in their first 100 days and certainly beyond. And this has been extraordinary. Of course, this is an extraordinary uh, candidate and president, an extraordinary 100 days for a lot of reasons we won't go into now. Uh, but it's interesting to see, and I, I've done this before. I did it with the Oregonian some years back, um, kept uh, coverage on media stories on particular subjects to see how the Oregonian, for example, uh, covered it. And there was a clear pattern of bias in how they would cover a subject uh, depending on uh, the perspective they were uh, uh, they were trying to uh, relate. And having been interviewed by the, the media and being misquoted or having certain things emphasized, other things left out, it's very frustrating. So I understand the frustration that we're hearing not only from President Trump, but from others. Uh, and one would hope that we would emerge with a more responsible uh, media in the future. But again, hope springs eternal, but I'm not overly optimistic. Uh, let's see, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in just a moment and uh, wrap things up. Um, Looking forward to a conversation tomorrow with the Congressman Ken Buck. We'll tell you more about his book and uh, my conversation with Africa New Life as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. This is, of course, the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I want to remind you of. Tomorrow we're going to talk with Congressman Ken Buck. We have an early interview with him we'll share with you at 4.30 in tomorrow's program. He's the author of Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. I shared a couple of days ago a few excerpts from the book and observations that he has made as a congressman who came in, as most do, very optimistic about his ability ability to to influence the course of events on behalf of his constituents to restore uh, sanity to Washington and was shocked to find that there is a system that if you uh, refuse to participate in, you simply will not have the opportunity to have an impact of any kind. One of the things that struck me in the article covering this book, Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think, is the fact that you actually pay a significant fee for sitting on certain committees. I'm not sure if that's true across the board. And I believe the money that you pay goes to your respective parties' um, campaign coffers. So it, it's shocking to me. Uh, Raising that money means that you are reliant on organizations who are seeking uh, to gain some influence and are willing to spend that kind of money. And he writes about that and much more in his book, which we'll be discussing tomorrow on the program. Again, Congressman Ken Buck, his book is titled Drain the Swamp, How Washington Corruption is Worse Than You Think. We're also going to talk with uh, Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze. Uh, she is an intern with Africa New Life. Alan Hotchkiss, of course, is the U.S. Executive Director. We had uh, Alan in uh, studio last week. We had the Africa New Life Radiothon, and you had an opportunity to hear about one of the projects that they are beginning um, and uh, the tremendous benefit of your support in helping to feed children there. Uh, and that feeding program leads to so many other things. Uh, well, in the course of our time together, we had conversations during the breaks before and after the radio thon began and uh, just discovered the uh, the depth and the breadth of ministry they're doing in the country of Rwanda. It's really extraordinary. So I asked Alan if he would 
consider coming back this week to talk about some of the other things they are doing. I think uh, because Afrikunu Life uh, is headquartered here in Portland, there's also a, a Rwandan branch, but it's it's a ministry that we take some ownership of. I think you'll thoroughly enjoy hearing about what Africa New Life is doing. I think I mentioned earlier that uh, I've traveled to Rwanda and my first visit there, first of all, I fell in love with the country. I had no idea that many years later I would have a nephew-in-law uh, in the family from Rwanda. I had no idea that uh, the connection with Rwanda would continue for many years uh, to follow. Uh, but I had the opportunity to work with and witness the work of Africa New Life in those early days. It's been more than a decade ago um, now, uh, but I was very impressed at the time and to watch how they have grown and developed and the work that God has given them to do and the effectiveness of their efforts uh, and the uh, connection to the Portland metro area um, really is uh, heartening. And I think you'll be encouraged and inspired. Also, I want to mention that they send a lot of uh, teams, short term mission teams from our community uh, to Rwanda to work with Africa New Life. And if you're looking for an opportunity to serve, you might want to check them out because there are always opportunities. In fact, he's trying to encourage some of us here to go back for me, uh, for others for the first time. So anyway, we're going to talk with Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze, who is an administrative intern. Uh, she'll be with us in studio as well. She happens to be from Rwanda, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, also, I wanted to remind you that if uh, if you have been thinking about but haven't yet responded to the opportunity to travel to the Holy Land in November, now's a great time to do that. It's April. You have time to save money. It's a great time to uh, begin to make plans, both by preparing and studying God's Word and um, and just getting ready for that kind of a, a trip that has the capacity to really enhance your study of the Bible and your walk with uh, with the Lord. In November, Experience Israel is offering a once-in-a-lifetime trip to the Holy Land with Genesis Tours and teaching Pastor Sean Thornton. I've traveled with Genesis on several occasions. They do a great job. I am so impressed by the uh, tour guides who are, are very well-versed in the uh, the country, the history, the Christian connection, as well as Pastor Sean Thornton, who will be the Bible teacher along the way. You'll have 10 exciting days to tour the land of Israel, experiencing the wonder of the Bible. You'll see it come alive. And to find out more about it, let me encourage you to go right now to kpdq.com. Enter the keyword Israel for all the details and registration. So don't miss the, the opportunity to travel this year during Jerusalem's 50th anniversary celebrations as well. Again, that's kpdq.com. Keyword Israel. Well, there have been a number of White House press briefings, but none quite as um, entertaining as the press briefing today. And no, I'm not talking about Sean Spicer as much as I'm talking about uh, Rob Gronkowski, um, who showed up at the White House press uh, briefing where the White House press secretary uh, was addressing the uh, White House press media. Well, that unlikely scenario nearly played out sort of during the day today at the White House press briefing when the New England Patriots star tight end made a cameo appearance offering to aid the real press secretary, Sean Spicer. Sean, need any help, he said in a mischievous voice and with a mischievous look on his face uh, after emerging from a door behind the podium. Now, Spicer, a well-documented Patriots fan, replied with a smile, I think I got this, but thank you. Maybe. All right. Well, thanks, man. I'll, I'll see you in a minute. <laughs> well, Spicer uh, tried to compose himself and return uh, to reporters' questions 
Uh, but they were laughing. He was laughing. And it took a minute or two to uh, pull that off. Well, Gronkowski and uh, many of his Patriot teammates were at the White House today to be honored for their win in the January of Super Bowl. Let's see, which one was it? L1. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, at the subsequent ceremony in front of the White House, uh, owner Robert Kraft gave President Trump a helmet and jersey emblazoned with Trump's last name. Boy, I would love to have had that, of course, with my own name on it. But that's another story. Uh, Kraft called Trump a very good friend of mine and described him as someone who, like the Patriots, had faced extremely tough odds and prevailed. Trump also made a a comparison between himself and the Patriots, noting that uh, they had won the Super Bowl in one of the greatest comebacks of all time and had defied the pundits. Boy, uh, they're wrong a lot, aren't they? Trump said, referring, of course, to the pundits. But it was kind of a comical, lighthearted moment. Um, in a press briefing where there are far too few lighthearted moments. Also holding a U.S. flag bearing the signatures of many of those whom he served in Afghanistan, Staff Sergeant Jose Luis Sanchez ran across the finish line completing the Boston Marathon. It was an impressive feat given the fact that in 2011, Sanchez lost the lower half of his left leg to an IED in Afghanistan. It's not for me, he said. It's for others to be inspired, to be motivated. Well, Sanchez uh, said after completing the marathon in under six hours, I walked it and uh, I, I took me more than six hours. Uh, we live for others. I've learned that throughout uh, uh, being very angry and frustrated and all that PTSD, I'm channeling that to do positive and give back to uh, whatever I've uh, taken from the community. Well, he hasn't taken anything as a, a former Marine serving the country. We owe him. But nonetheless, Sanchez further expressed his motivation for running, saying, I wanted to not only recognize veterans and stuff, but everyone who thinks that they're unable to do something. I couldn't stand up for more than three seconds or walk more than two feet. And I fought my way for four, five years just to be able to walk farther, to be able to lift my body up. And I kept on pushing it mentally and spiritually. I was good, so I wanted to push it even further and do the marathon. Well, instead of making excuses and dwelling on traumatic experiences of losing my leg, he chose to look for the positive and act on those opportunities that presented themselves. Staff Sergeant Sanchez is truly an inspiration to all Simplify Marine. It was a, a beautiful picture watching him uh, run across the finish line. And my understanding was he carried that flag throughout. So it was quite a feat and uh, very impressive. And the, uh, the the muscular thighs on this guy, very impressive as well. He's worked very hard uh, to uh, gain that victory. So kudos to the uh, Staff Sergeant Sanchez. Once again, tomorrow, Congressman Ken Buck will join us. Drain the swamp. How Washington corruption is worse than you think. How could it be worse than we think? I mean, given what we do know, we'll also talk with Alan Hotchkiss and Lillian Uwaze with Africa New Life. So looking forward to that. And then on Friday, we'll lighten up and have a bit of fun. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program and James Blinn for producing. And most importantly, thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.